0: Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about blockchain and the Internet of Things. And I'm really glad to have with me, David Sunstabo. He's the founder of IOTA and the co-chair of the IOTA Foundation, somebody who knows a huge amount about the domains of internet of things and blockchain together. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Anthony. It's a pleasure.
0: I wanna start with a brief introduction because The idea of DAGs, Tangles, IoT and blockchain working together is still relatively unknown to a lot of people. And I know you've been doing this for years. Could you give us a little introduction to what is the domain of blockchain and IoT? What's the difference between a DAG, a Tangle and a traditional distributed ledger?
1: Yeah, no, certainly. So I guess we can put it in the context of how it all originated in the beginning. So if we go into a time machine and go back to 2013 and look at how the blockchain space looked at the time, you had your Bitcoin, and you had your copy Litecoin, and you had a few other experimental projects. In there, you also had a project called NXT, which was created by a guy called Sergey Vanceglo. It was the first proof-of-stake blockchain, and it was also the first blockchain with kind of 2.0 functionality, like uh, digital asset management and voting on the blockchain, and so on and so forth. And in that little tiny community and at the time we we're talking like a few hundred people was kind of a big community in, in blockchain so this was like really small community with a few people there was another guy called sergey popov so there were two sergeys early on in this project and he was toying around with this idea of using a directed acyclic graph rather than a linear blockchain data architecture and so we all got together in this kind of online forum where we discussed these ideas and, and uh, they kind of catalyzed into what eventually would become the blueprint for IOTA. And uh, in 2014, a few of us came together. And what I really wanted to achieve was to build this distributed ledger technology for the Internet of Things, because what is essentially a distributed ledger? It's there because you can ensure censorship resistance and that is, of course, very important in, in security. And it's also there because it's decentralized and open. Anyone can join a network. Anyone can participate. And then when you start to look at how will the Internet of Things look, we are talking about like billions of different devices sending messages to each other. And this happens in an autonomous fashion. So again, it's a very distributed physical network. And it's very decentralized in the sense that it doesn't have one host that gives instructions to all these different sensors and actuators. So from my perspective, or from our perspective, I should say, what we realized is that regular blockchain architecture, which is what you find in Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., it will never be able to scale to accommodate these billions of devices. And we can get into the details of why and how a little bit later. But essentially, this was the reason we started on the project. We realized we have to think about this architecture from scratch. We have to come up with something completely new. And that's where the ideas of the Directed Icyclic Graph, which we call the Tangle in IOTA, came about. And essentially, the birth of IOTA uh, at the end of 2014 is kind of the unofficial, official starting point of IOTA.
0: Thanks for that, David. And I'm really interested, as a founder and a founder is a pretty rare beast in the blockchain space, particularly for those established or, or more well-known platforms. How do you get from an internet forum to founding a protocol to founding a blockchain foundation? How do you get there?
1: Oh yeah, that that's a very interesting question. And it was a wild journey because back in the day, like I said, it was a very niche technology and you had Bitcoin and Bitcoin in the public eye was kind of associated with the dark web and drug trades and all of these nefarious activities and you had some kind of fringe ideologies, uh, connotations with it as well. So of course, when we went from this small forum and we were going to establish this nonprofit foundation, that was not an easy process because of course, in order to get a foundation set up, you need to have a bank account, you need to have all of these things in place. But back then crypto was kind of synonymous with don't touch it. That's pretty much what we were told by all the banks we went to in the beginning. And we chose to set it up in Germany of all places. And the reason we chose to do that is Germany is perhaps the most strict place in terms of regulation and onerous oversight. And we really wanted to just go head on. Like if we're not able to convince them, it will be impossible to convince the rest of the world to actually adopt this as a protocol. So instead of taking any shortcuts like Switzerland or I love Man or any of these easy places to get set up, we chose, okay, let's go full steam ahead, Germany. We spent about, uh, I, I want to say one and a half year nonstop before Deutsche Bank decided, okay, you can have a bank account. and. And we were the first uh, foundation in Germany to be established entirely with cryptocurrency. So that was an interesting milestone. And also, of course, Germany was the heart of industry in, or still is the heart of industry in Europe. So it's the perfect place to be when you're developing infrastructure for the internet of things. But it was certainly a long and wild ride because there were so many loopholes you had to find. There was so much red tape you had to break through and convincing people that have no clue what crypto was why this was important, why this wasn't just some kind of uh, evil technology, so to speak. And then, then of course, you go through the usual startup grind of having to um, ensure payroll is uh, streamlined and processes are streamlined and you have people from all over the world. And it's very hard to navigate all these different jurisdictions legally, as well as just purely logistically. And it took some time, but now in 2020, we are 120 people in 25 different countries with the main office of course, being in Berlin, Germany. It's crazy to look back on from just those early forum days until uh, now we have an international organization.
0: It's fantastic to hear. And tell me, what's the vision of IOTA? What was the mission that you set out to achieve and where have you gone with it?
1: So, So the main vision was definitely that as we're entering this era of complete autonomy, in virtually every aspect of our lives and in production. You have millions and millions and billions actually of devices gathering data, acting on their own without human input. And what I saw or what we saw was that in order for this to actually be secure, it cannot be owned just by Google, Amazon or Microsoft or IBM, like it can't be just one entity that holds all this power, because we're talking about controlling everything from traffic to aircraft, to your own home security, to e-health, your actual health, et cetera. All of this incredible amount of data needs to be secured. And from my perspective, the transactions, of course, that decentralized ledgers enable are cool, and there's plenty of very valuable use cases there. From my perspective, the data was the most interesting thing in conjunction with distributed ledger functionality because you can actually ensure data integrity. You can guarantee that this piece of data has never been tampered with and it can never be tampered with because in order to tamper with it, you would have to take over the entire network. Whereas in traditional databases, you can either get access via some sort of exploit or having some man in the middle attack. And this becomes very scary when you start to envision a future that is completely autonomous, where vehicles are acting without human input, where your um, diagnostics is being handled by wearables, etc., etc. And so that was one of the things. And the second part is also, how can we make the Internet of things reflect the liberty that the internet provided and the Cambrian explosion of innovation that was catalyzed by this complete open, uh, permissionless environment. And here you, of course, you have all these billions of devices and the question becomes, how will they collaborate? How can you make these trade technological resources like computational power, electricity or data, which is kind of the oil uh, of IoT and here you need transactions and this is where the transaction part of IOTA comes in, that these different devices need to be able to trade these resources autonomously. So they need to have a way to do that. And of course, Visa won't be the solution. Like These these devices won't be having any Visa cards. And you also can't really have fees on these transactions because they are so minimal. So if I'm a sensor gathering some weather data and I'm selling it to a computational analytics host, then maybe I'm just selling it for 0.0001 cent or something equivalent. And that's, of course, impossible to achieve with traditional payment systems today. Whereas with IOTA, and we will get into the details of why and how that is, with IOTA, you don't have any fees on transactions. So what this enables, or at least the vision that it was created for, is that all of these different devices can trade autonomously, all sorts of resources between one another in real time, completely for free without any intermediary parties. And I think that is a very interesting world. And also, of course, that enables a more secure autonomous world.
0: Fantastic, thank you, David. And it's clear, as the network of IoT devices explodes and the number of use cases and examples of where IoT devices need to communicate with each other, you talked about a number of different areas, different industries, healthcare, automotive, smart cities, just your your own day-to-day experience. I'd love to double-click on some of that now, but While we've still got everyone's attention, I want us to strap in and go deep into how a DAG actually works, because this is fascinating to me. I certainly don't feel like I've got to a good understanding of how a DAG is constructed. Take us in with a deep dive.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think the best context for everyone that is listening, most may not be that familiar with the data structure behind a blockchain, but I will use it just as a comparison. So with a blockchain, you essentially gather all transactions into this Let's call it a box, or let, let's actually just call it a block, because that's what it is. We just envision this box where you put all the transactions in, and there is a finite volume of this box, so you can only fit a certain amount of transactions into that. And then you essentially have to bid for priority, because in the blockchain networks, you have two different users: you have the ones that are validating the blockchain, and users that are actually transacting with the blockchain. So. Here you have a block that has been filled up with transactions and then you have another block that is filled up with transactions and they have to bid for priority in the network, i.e. to be validated by the validators or the miners or stakers in different blockchain architectures. And the problem here is that it's, it's an obvious bottleneck because you can only process one block at a time in a very linear data structure. So you have one block, then you have another block and a block and a block and a block, but it's only one at a time. And this means that if you want to get your transaction through fast, you have to bid higher than the other blocks to the miners, because of course, the fees they are gathering is what you are bidding. And this means that you cannot do microtransactions. You cannot uh, enable the scenario that I just mentioned with like 0.001 cent transactions for some tiny piece of data. And it also means essentially that there's a limited throughput. Because it's so linear, it's so rigid. This data structure is so rigid that you can only get one block at a time. And in Bitcoin, I don't remember the exact confirmation time there is per block right now, but it's very low. I think it's hovering around seven transactions per second. In Ethereum, I think they may have come up to twenty. I'm not entirely sure on the numbers right now, but it's it's again because of this bottleneck. So with a DAG and or the Tangle in IOTA, what we do differently is that we remove the blocks and instead we build the data structure entirely based on individual transactions. So each individual transaction then references to previous transactions and those again of course reference to previous transactions and this goes on and on back throughout the entire DAG, the entire data structure. And what this enables in contrast to the blockchain scenario that I just mentioned is that you no longer have this separation between users and validation in the network instead every time you issue a transaction you as a user participate in validating previous transactions and every other participant is doing the same thing so you've got rid of the bottleneck and actually the more activity that happens in the network the more efficient the network gets because that means more validation is also occurring so you build this multi-dimensional I don't want to say blockchain, but instead of having this rigid one-dimensional blockchain, you have many different degrees of freedom, parallelized data architecture where all of these can go through the network at the same time. There is no uh, limitation, theoretically, of course.
0: And so what you're doing is you're replacing the transactors and the miners, and you're actually having all of the nodes on the network, all of the devices being both a sender and validator at the same time, so you can scale it faster. I'm really interested... How do you store the data? So obviously with a distributed ledger like Hyperledger Fabric or Corda, there will be a ledger. There will be a record of information. With a Tangle structure, where does the data sit?
1: Of course, the data sits in the whole network. The the kind of metadata sits in the whole network itself. So when you issue a transaction, of course, every node operator that uh, is participating has that data, just like in in a blockchain essentially. But if you're going to use it to send large quantities of data, What you ought to do, or at least what we envision is going to happen, is that you use the tangle for verification. So you take the hashes of the actual data, put that on the tangle, and then you use any kind of other more efficient encrypted data transmission protocol of your own choosing. But you use the tangle to anchor the truth or the integrity of the data. So if there is any tampering of the data, you know it immediately. Alternatively, you can use what we have, which we call IOTA streams, which is this module that we've already built for data transmission. And here then, of course, you can also ensure that the data itself cannot be tampered with in any shape or form. And that is then stored in the Tangle network. But we have also made it modular so that not all nodes have to process or hold all this data. You can choose whether to be participating as a as a chronicle node, is what we call it in the IoT ecosystem. And a chronicle node is essentially um, the nodes that store the raw data.
0: Got it. And IoT devices and sensors are clearly prolific across a number of different industries and different sectors. So I'm really interested to get your view on which industries or which use cases have gained the most momentum around using IOTA.
1: Yeah, so definitely the, the, the one that has gathered the most is the data part, because of course, there are still some hurdles to get the big corporates to accept that, hey, there's volatility and we have to um, reduce our exposure to the volatility, et cetera. So it's always easier to um, get adoption with the data part. However, we do have some very interesting use cases in mobility in particular, where several big OEMs, the most publicly known at this point, that is Jaguar Land Rover. So they are envisioning using IOTA wallets for essentially, the car being able to pay for parking, toll stations, and also actually be an economic agent that earns iotas through detecting potholes and reporting that data back or selling that data back to to whoever is responsible for maintaining the road, etc. So... Automotive is one of those regions that we see a lot of adoption in. Supply chain is another one because even though we are living in 2020, when you actually look at how our supply system works, it's still paper documents pretty much. It's insane. There's I don't remember the exact number, but there's like 20 or 30 papers for each goddamn package. And these get lost all the time. So you have delays and you have a lot of additional costs. I think it's $4 trillion each year that is lost just due to these inefficiencies in the supply chain. So, of course, if you have a secure and efficient free ledger that you can use and everyone can agree on using as a protocol, you can save a lot of money and you can optimize a lot of processes in the supply chain. So those are probably the ones that we have the most maturity on, but also more broader smart city applications like solar panels and energy trading between buildings and so on and so forth. We are currently part of a European Commission project called Smart City Exchange with uh, 11 cities. And here, the idea is how can we trade energy and data between cars, buildings, and other parts of the infrastructure to just optimize and thirdly, I want to mention, or fourthly, I guess, is the identity sector, because this is also a huge problem. And we see this, especially now with the unfortunate COVID-19 crisis. Um, one of the biggest obstacles right now is if you've had the virus and you've uh, developed antibodies, so you are immune to it, how can we verify that? How can you have an identity and verify, okay, I'm, I'm good to go here. I'm good to go out of quarantine. I'm good to go back to work, et cetera. Unfortunately, today we have like 50,000 different identity systems, and this is a problem. This is a huge problem. It causes hurdles all the time. So using a distributed ledger again, and we are developing something called Unified Identity Protocol in uh, the IOTA Foundation together with other companies, uh, which we can get into a little bit later. And the goal here is, again, you have your identity, which is then completely completely Guaranteed to not be tampered with in any shape, way, or form, so you get rid of the big problem of identity theft, and you can also have verifiable credentials, so for instance, I have a driver's license, I'm over the age of 18, so I can go to the bar, like these kinds of credentials, you can have them, but they can also be revoked, so if you lose your driver's license because you went to the bar and then you (laughs) got into the vehicle, you could, or not automatically, but you could very efficiently revoke that and there would be no way for that person to fake it, so to speak, because you 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 would know that this identity sits on top of a ledger that cannot be tampered with. And one last point I want to make on that topic is it also gives the opportunity to have data ownership. So you have this self-sovereign identity and you control your own data and you can sell it to the Google, you can sell it to the Facebooks of the world but you are in charge of it, and you can revoke it, and you can put it up for auction, so to speak, and get paid back in IOTA tokens. Of course, this will take a long time to get adopted, but this is, in my opinion, how identity should be. It should be decentralized, you should own it, and it would optimize so many processes all across every single vertical of industry.
0: It wouldn't be a current podcast if somebody wasn't going to mention COVID, and it's very clear that the digital identity and credential space has been found wanting over the past few months. So it's absolutely clear that you've been focusing on that one, and the unified identity work you're doing sounds fascinating. Obviously, a lot of these concepts you've proven, you've developed or you've integrated a wallet with a Jaguar Land Rover vehicle, you're working with a number of cities. How far away are we from implementation of these sorts of platforms and protocols? What are the barriers or what more needs to be done?
1: Yeah, for sure. So what I tend to say is that even though uh, blockchain has been around for over a decade right now, every single project in this space is still very much in a beta stage. Most of them are in an alpha stage. But what we are at least working on in the IOTA Foundation is to reach Production readiness by early 2021. So that means that we have all the theoretical pieces in place. We already have the next alpha net that will be kind of IOTA 2.0. It's already people can play around with it and test it out. And we have bundles and bundles of documents and uh, white papers and all of this stuff if people want to check it out in depth. That is indeed the big problem. Is that we've seen a lot of cool proof of concepts in the entire space, not just in IOTA but in Ethereum and a lot of other projects, but at the end of the day, it's not enterprise ready at all. So what we have done to streamline this process is that we have teamed up with the Eclipse Foundation. So we are, uh, or we have set up this working group together with the Eclipse Foundation called Tangle EE, and the EE stands for Enterprise Edition. So the goal here is essentially to streamline the development from the IOTA Foundation into the Tangle EE working group, where we have companies like Dell Technologies, TM Forum, SD Microelectronics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where we are working on these very specific modules. The two first ones that we are focusing on is uh, decentralized identity, as I just mentioned, and the second one is decentralized marketplaces. And then after that process keeps evolving, the next goal is standardization. So we also have the object management group, which is one of the biggest organization Uh, or standardization bodies, I should say, uh, in the world. They are part of the working group. So we have this direct path towards also creating a standard. So people don't have to create all of the basic stuff from scratch and spend a lot of resources on that in order to adopt the technology. Instead, the standards are already in place. And this is our strategy to become enterprise-ready or production-ready. So we can start to see that. And I believe early 2021 is when we will see see a big proliferation of this. And we, in dialogue with the companies we are working with, there are indeed projects that they want to scale out and have millions and millions of actual products with IOTA in them. So that is, of course, extremely exciting after all these years of working to finally start to see the finish line of when this is no longer just theory and vision, but actually manifesting into real products and on a large scale
0: fascinating and i know you can't talk about some of the projects because they'll be top secret or they're not going to be in the public domain yet so i don't want to breach any confidentiality what's the difference between working with an automotive company or a private sector organization versus working with a city Mm. obviously there's a very very different scale and scope could you talk us through a little bit what that feels like and looks like
1: oh yeah for sure so Actually, the good example here is going back to the city exchange program, the smart city um, program by the European Commission that we were part of founding. So here we actually worked with Jaguar Land Rover, as well as um, the city of Trondheim, which is a city here in Norway, where the biggest university is, uh, tenu.
0: It's a beautiful city and I've driven through it on a motorcycle before on one of the most picturesque road trips I've ever taken in my life. So I, I wish that I could have got in on that.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we're spoiled by nature up here. But uh, so, so this, this, this is a very good example, because here we were working with both a for profit, big uh, corporate, as well as the municipality of Trondheim, directly the city. And I would say that it depends, of course, on where you are. But with corporates, they, of course, they have very strict budgets, and they need to be able to see a path towards profitability. Even if they have a big R&D budget, at the end of the day, they, they have their quotas, so to speak. So you have to maneuver a little bit more tactically, I should say. Whereas with, at least so far with governments and, and other nonprofit organizations that we work with, there are, of course, a lot of bureaucracy, but I would say it's easier to get funding and it's easier to get traction when you finally breach through the red tape. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if that was the most eloquent way of describing the differences, but it's, it's certainly a lot more money-driven on the corporate side and a lot more proving the vision, I would say, that, hey, this will actually not necessarily generate profits, but this will improve the lives of our citizens when you're working with the municipality.
0: I hear you. And as somebody who works with corporates and enterprises for most of the work that I do, I can absolutely relate to there having to be a commercial rationale behind any technology transformation. Right? Yeah. Digi- digital transformation is discretionary. It's corporate spend. That money is competing with operational improvement, with staff recruitment, with a number of other technologies and upgrades and enhancements that could equally create value immediately or in different times. So the horizon and the business case has to be there for sure. One thing you mentioned previously is you talked about interoperability. You talked about working groups with other platforms, Ethereum being one and others. What's the current state of thinking around interoperability between Tangles and other blockchain networks or IOTA and other protocols?
1: The way that I've always seen it is that, of course, in crypto, there's a lot of tribalism because people hold a certain token and so they become very defensive. But from our point of view, we've always been very welcoming and open about we want to collaborate. We want to just consolidate this entire ecosystem and create the best solutions possible. So we we have proactively reached out to different initiatives and done some different pilot projects or at least co-written some papers together, et cetera, research. One of the, actually, you mentioned it earlier with Hyperledger. We've built a bridge together with Hyperledger uh, when we teamed up with the Linux Foundation Edge, their Edge group because of course, that's where the IoT (laughs) really lies. And here, here, it's all about being able to create this interoperability where you have the permissioned ledgers, which have their own benefits and certain criteria that at least big business is very fond of, but also having the direct bridge to the open permissionless world. And what I usually compare it to is kind of intranet versus internet. So still to this day, we have a lot of silos for organizations, internal networks, et cetera, but they are connected to the internet because of course you need internet as well. Uh, but that's kind of where we see our technology, the IO tangle is kind of like the internet. And then you have hyperledger, which is this intranet, this permissioned network with separate rules and you have to be a member, et cetera. And I think that is inevitable. You will never have the entire world accept complete openness on everything. There will always be these different criterias, but the goal from our side is to have a seamless interoperability between them. And of course, as IOTA, let's say it becomes the standard for data from IoT devices, then Hyperledger can still use it as kind of an Oracle by fetching data from the Tangle, and it knows that this data is verifiable. So it can then use it in its own uh, smart contracts, for instance.
0: Got you. And I want to double click now on the identity concepts that you talked about before, because as I said, the experience of COVID, the experience of the work we've been going through, particularly around healthcare and privacy of our data, has inflamed anybody who's out there who's been working in self-sovereign identity saying, I told you so, this is the capability that we've needed all along. This is the capability that we need in practice now. Clearly, it's not a technology that's mature, that's in anybody's healthcare system, or that's ready to go for anybody's mobile wallets or mobile apps right now. What do you think is needed to help us to scale the distributed identity network or self-sovereign identity type networks or digital identity platforms and get that really into the mainstream?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest mistakes that has happened in the digital identity space ever since the late 90s is that there's always been a for-profit angle. There's always been, okay, you can issue a certain credential, or you can establish a certain identifier, but it costs X amount of money to do so. Because we run all the infrastructure, so of course we need to get paid and blah, blah, blah. Uh, That has to change. Uh, It has to be completely decentralized and there has to be no fees whatsoever involved with creating identities, issuing credentials, or verifiable claims. All of this has to be open and free. So that's the strategy we're going with, because then you don't end up in a situation where people are competing on price and doing all this lobbying activity. And at the end of the day, even if you have a digital identity, there are still vulnerabilities because it's hosted in the cloud by a certain company. That's one of the biggest mistakes I personally think has been prevalent. And we see this also with some of the blockchain initiatives on identity from 2015, 16, 17, that they also went with the pricing model. And now those projects are very much struggling. We are seeing a lot of uptick in interest because we precisely, we don't have that angle. We're a nonprofit and we got rid of the fees on transactions. So you can use it completely for free. But uh, to your other point there, it's really also about the limitations of Regular blockchain architecture, because as I mentioned earlier, given this bottleneck that I described earlier, because you have this linear block after block architecture, you don't have a lot of transactions or, I should say, messages on the network. But if you are going to use this as an identity system for billions of people and billions and billions of devices, you need a lot of throughput, like virtually unlimited throughput. And unfortunately, regular blockchain architecture just doesn't scale to accommodate this. So there's also been this inherent technological barrier, or I would say complete full stop dead end. But yeah, that's also the reason the Tangle fits very well for this kind of use case, because there will be so many messages on the network issuing this credential that verifying this. So I think it's a combination of those two things that first of all, wrong approach in terms of trying to make it a business. Secondly, the technology had to mature.
0: As we're seeing the use cases, whether it be immunity tracing, whether it be cross-platform ticketing, whether it be sensor data, whether it be allowing ourselves in and out of restaurants, I'm sure there's a number of different places that we can see this technology going to. Let's go into the architecture of it. You've been teeing it up. Let's do the deep dive. Talk us through how we manage free unlimited scalability with a Tangle or a DAG-type network.
1: So if we we go back to what I said about the blockchain, like the reason there's fees, of course, is because you have these two uh, diametrically opposed actors. You want, as a miner or a validator, you really want to get as much fees as possible. So, of course, you only accept the blocks with the most fees, the highest bid, essentially. Whereas in the IOTA network, since we've made validation of the network an intrinsic part of using the network, you no longer have anyone to pay because you and everyone else in the network is an equal validator and equal user. So this means that almost magically you get rid of the fees because there's no longer any barrier between validation and usage. It's one and the same. And this this was the kind of eureka moment that we realized that not only are we solving the scalability limitation, but hey, the fees are just kind of magically vanishing here because there is no longer this party that is interested in fees and there's no longer any economic incentive to have uh, fees. There's no way to get prioritized in a network by paying because everyone is an equal. Every single node is an equal. So there's really not that. Of course, we could dive, dive into some of the more exotic topics of how nodes build up reputation, etc. And if you're a malicious actor, you have less rep or you have a worse reputation so your transactions won't get confirmed etc but that is really just a principle it's very simple actually it's it's just the fact that no longer do you have two different parties with two different uh, incentive structures you just have one and the same
0: and whereas with traditional blockchain networks the larger it gets theoretically the more complex and the slower it can become with a tangle or a dag structure the bigger it gets the faster it can become
1: Exactly, and we saw this in two thousand seventeen with with the crazy times November, uh, December two thousand seventeen, when everything skyrocketed and everyone in the everyone in the general population got interested in crypto. You saw fees of like fifty dollars and seventy dollars on the Bitcoin network, and I mean, how are you going to use that as a payment system? It's impossible. It's downright impossible to use it for anything, at all. So. That is indeed the secret sauce, so to speak. It's just as long as you have the blocks and the miners, you will always have to have fees because otherwise there is no incentive for the miners to actually or the stakers in proof of stake blockchains. There is no incentive for them to to run nodes. But in IOTA, the incentive is just to be able to use the network, and it's so lightweight in its architecture that it doesn't cost you. It's not like in Bitcoin where you have this immense amount of hashing power in order to be a mining node. Instead in, in IOTA it's just lightweight. It costs like uh we, we did the calculations and it's like 0.0000001 cent or something in electricity cost because of course we can't beat the loss of thermodynamics. But it, it doesn't it doesn't cost anything. So there's no barrier for you to be a node issuing transactions. And that's of course also very important in the Internet of Things where Devices have very limited battery.
0: 100%. And that's really, really fascinating. Obviously, we've talked about on other podcast shows the challenge around the user experience or getting people to work with public blockchains, cryptos, hot, cold wallets. The concept of tokenization in and of itself is still, for a number of the clients that I speak to or the enterprises that I get to speak to, that's still a barrier. Talk me through some of the challenges that you've had in trying to implement IOTA protocols or Tangles in some of your deployments to date. What are some of the things that you find difficult or things that people should be aware of that they need to plan for in advance?
1: Yeah. So of course, as every project, we've had a lot of setbacks and we've had a lot of different problems, both working just through the theory and implementation and also just running this ecosystem. So. And when it comes to going to corporates and getting them to understand the technology, if they have smart people, <laughs> it's quite easy to, to walk them through how a DAG works. Of course, most of them already know it from Git or something equivalent. But if they don't, you just explain it with some charts and it's quite easy to get them to understand the basic of what a DAG is and how it's different from a blockchain. But then the question is, how easy is it to implement And Here you have to have client libraries and you have to make sure that the code is clean and easy to read and get people to really be able to develop on top of it without too many barriers. And I would say that ever since 2018, mid-2018, that's been one of our primary focuses is to really create this this ecosystem and tool set around the Tangle, not just the Tangle itself, but also all the auxiliary necessities in order to get companies to use it. And we've also done our best to really make the process from starting a node to issuing a transaction being as simple as something that your grandma could do. That's where we want every piece of our technology to be that your grandmother who probably doesn't even use a smartphone, she should still be able to intuitively understand if I just click here and there and there, then I have a node up and running. And if I click here, I send a transaction or I send a piece of data and I just type in a message here. Like that kind of usability is is where it needs to go. Because right now it, it has been way too hard for people to actually develop or even just use the basic functionalities of all of these different distributed ledger technologies. And this is where, of course, permission systems such as Hyperledger has done a tremendous job with building very good ecosystem around the core technology. And that is what we're replicating in the Tangle EE working group as well.
0: And I wonder, as you're sat in a Jaguar E-Pace, or I can't remember the exact vehicle you used, and you're looking at your toll transactions or whatever the vehicle is earning as it's sharing pothole data or mapping data or whatever it is, your vehicle's earning money for you. Are you seeing tokens? Are you seeing wallets, concepts and terminology? Or are you trying to keep this relatively simple and usable?
1: Yeah, so definitely we want IOTA to be kind of a back end technology for most use cases. Because, of course, there is no, even though your grandma should be able to use it, there's no reason for her to stop thinking about money in pounds or dollars or euros. She should still be able to see that nomination. So, IOTA will be a back end technology, just like TCP/IP or an HTML when you go on the internet. You don't need to know any of that at all. You just load the page and use it very intuitively. That's how we want this technology to, or not just how we want it to be, in my opinion, it's how it has to be in order to actually gain adoption outside of the tech realm where people who are interested in technology don't mind that it's complex. It has to reach that stage before this will ever be globally adopted in any shape or form.
0: The user experience related to technology of any kind is critical, and I'm glad to hear that you're focusing on being able to be the enabling technology without making it too complex, because I think there's huge potential in all different forms of decentralized and distributed technology. But if it's not usable, if it's not something that an enterprise can understand and that the everyday user can consume or transact with, it's going to die a death really quickly. So I'm really delighted to hear that. I'm really curious now as you said 2021 is probably the horizon where we're going to see enterprise ready deployment for some of these use cases i want to talk through different types of use case that you're going to foresee and what's your bet or what's your preference on what you would like to see come into place so so in no particular order which use case do you think is going to be adopted first and most widely which use case do you think is going to generate the most value and then which use case are you the most passionate to see succeed
1: very very interesting question so i would say to the first one i believe that at least with iota i believe mobility will be the sector that just goes the farthest to first because that's where we have several big oems already implementing it and kind of committing themselves to use this or implement this into their products. So I think in early 2020, mobility plus smart city, i.e. charging station, etc., that kind of infrastructure is the first place where I believe regular humans, so to speak, will start to interact with the technology in day-to-day life. As for the one that will generate the most value, uh, it depends, of course, what you consider value. If it's purely monetary, I would say supply chain just because of the immense cost reductions that are possible to enable. And here, just as an example, we just did this project with uh, Trademark East Africa, because of course the infrastructure there is not the most up-to-date, and uh, they really want to boost their own economy in Kenya, and they ship a lot of uh, flowers to, um, to the Netherlands and to Europe in general. So we did uh, this pilot with them. And they are eager to expand this further. So I think supply chain is also one of the the biggest ones in 2021. Thirdly, I would say the one I'm most passionate about right now is probably identity. And when I speak of identity, I don't mean just for us as human beings. I also mean for devices. Because to me, this is one of the biggest problems with Internet of Things is that you have all of these I want to call them wannabe Internet of Things. So in my house, I have connected everything that I can connect, but it's still small ecosystems. Like I think I have seven different apps, and I've tried to consolidate as much as possible, but because there are still these closed proprietary solutions, they don't often interact with one another. And one of the reasons for this is that there is no clear standard for identifying devices. So identity of things is one of the things that I'm very passionate about because without it, the rest of the vision is very hard to implement. So the identity protocol is certainly the thing that I am most passionate about. And it's very mature in the foundation already. And we have the entire Tangle EE working group with a lot of big corporate startups and, and academics and the standardization body there working on this actively. So I also think that will be in 2021, one of the killer applications of IOTA.
0: Great stuff. And I wish you luck, because I know from experience that standardization activity is always challenging, but it's the first place to start. right? If you're going to be creating transformation, it has to start with standards, then digitization, demonetization, decentralization. And then once you've got that out and about, it's there and open for everybody to use. So thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for driving this forward. Before we close the show, I want to ask, how can people find out more about IOTA? Where can people find you? And what else have you got going on in your life?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So if you want to learn more about IOTA, the best place to start is definitely to go to iota.org. We are actually launching a new website in the next couple of weeks. It will have a very transformational, (laughs) it'll go through a transformation very soon where a lot more information on all the partnerships, all the different technologies, etc. So if you're listening to this before the new website, definitely go back in a week or two and then you will have a lot more information to look at. As for what I got going on in my life in general, I am working on IOTA pretty much from I wake up until I go to sleep. I'm trying to take more time off these days, but you know, when you're in the middle of something like this, it's very hard to let your mind actually disconnect even when you are not at your computer or at the office. But I'm in Norway and it's the Corona crisis, but fortunately we have a lot of nature. So I try to take a lot of walks just to keep my head sane. That's pretty much my life these days, just working and taking walks in the Norwegian landscape.
0: Sounds good. And if there was any place to get a piece of solace, the Norwegian countryside is certainly one of my favorite places to do that. So I'm very, very jealous. Thank you very much for sharing all of your experience. I'm looking forward very much to hearing more about those announcements and some more of the work that you're doing. Thank you again for coming on the show and stay safe.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.